Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. In the United States, we have multiple commercial health insurers, each with their own rules regarding filing and documenting claims for payment. Medicare and Medicaid have their own rules, and both of those programs rely heavily on insurers who impose their own rules. All this adds up to a significant burden on healthcare providers who rely upon staff and technology to navigate this complex system. While their various estimates all told administrative costs, of which those related to claims payment are only a part, account for at least a few hundred billion dollars of healthcare spending each year. This figure is much lower in other countries. How insurance-related health spending in the United States compares to that in other countries is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Barack Richmond, Professor of Law and Business Administration at Duke University. Dr. Richmond and co-authors published a paper in the August 2022 issue of Health Affairs comparing administrative spending in five countries with spending in the United States. Not only did they find that health systems in these five other countries had significantly lower costs than in the U.S., they provide insight into the reasons for these differences, and that's what we'll discuss today. Dr. Richmond, welcome to the program. Alan, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being my guest today. This is a topic that we've been talking about for literally decades. We know that health spending in the United States particularly on administration, is higher than in other countries. Since we've known that for a while, you took a particular look at this topic in your paper. What were you focused on? What insights were you looking for when you started the study that we published? So I think the primary objective that we had was to use a different method of measuring administrative costs. Um, It is true that there have been a number of studies in the past that have found that the United States spends more on administrative costs than other countries. But those have mostly been obtained uh, through aggregate analyses, looking at total personnel or total costs that are spent on effectively non-medical events. What we wanted to do is take a much more microanalytic approach. Um, Our team includes uh, some pioneering scholars of accounting, and we use what's called time-driven activity-based costing. And effectively what that is, is instead of looking at aggregate numbers, we actually spent a lot of time looking at the specific processes that are involved in billing. We watched at specific sites at the number of personnel and the number of minutes that are spent simply trying to get paid. Um, And what we did, we first did this uh, in a 2017 piece in the United States. Uh, And what we found was that even looking at this much more microanalytic approach, uh, we found numbers that are comparable to what were obtained through the broader approach. Um, And what this study is about is trying to use that very same method, time-driven activity-based costing, uh, in other countries. And the basic objective is if we can use this microanalytic approach, we can actually identify where administrative costs arise, what their drivers are, and how they compare across different countries and different facilities. 
So what I like about this paper, as you say, is that it gives us insights, not just, wow, we spend a lot, but what are we actually doing when we're putting people on task and making them go through steps that uh, are certainly important, but they aren't central to the provision of care. Your paper focused on what are called billing and insurance-related administrative costs. This is a bit of a term of art. Can you just tell us what those are and why that was the focus for your paper? So I, I think part of the motivation is precisely in the question that you, the way you asked the question. Um, these are costs that do not generate value. These are uh, not dollars spent on healthcare, not dollars spent on promoting health, not dollars even spent on uh, extending um, the the assurance that we get with health insurance. Uh, these are just the dollars that are spent to get. Dollars. This is what uh, a healthcare provider has to spend simply to get paid for services that were already provided. Um, now, when we think of administrative costs, we think of this large category of non-value-added expenses, just basically you know, dollars that are spent to run the system. Um, and billing and insurance-related costs, BIR costs, um, have been found to be a really significant fraction of overall administrative costs, somewhere around 80 to 85 percent. Um, now, the other remaining 15 to 20 percent is, I don't know, spending on electricity to run the offices, um, uh, maybe the Christmas party, those sorts of administrative expenses that just are used to run the system. BIR costs, which again is about 85 percent of total administrative costs, are the actual procedures that a provider spends to get paid. So it's all, it's the effort that is spent to obtain, to receive payment. Um, and we focused on this because A, uh, they represented the lion's share of administrative costs. Um, and B, we anticipated that these are the areas of costs that are really sensitive to both national um, and organizational features in the way we provide care in the United States. Okay, I'm eager to get to the results, but before we do that, I just want to draw out something you noted in the paper. You didn't want the results of your paper to be used to draw particularly broad conclusions because, as you describe, you have a very uh, resource-intensive study method, and so who you studied and what countries you studied in are, are, are really important. Can you just say a little bit about the selection process for the countries and the sites that makes you want to be cautious in interpreting the results? So as you noted, this is a, a very um, uh, cost-intensive way of measuring costs. Um, we, uh, we, we, we delve very deeply into individual facilities. We deploy a team um, uh, of accountants who are experts in TDABC and also local billing experts who are really familiar with the billing processes at the particular site. Um, and as I mentioned before, we, it really involves counting the number of minutes that a particular uh, process has to devote to collecting a bill. It's almost like following a bill. TDABC, by the way, was developed uh, to determine how much, say, uh, uh, it costs a factory to, to produce an individual widget. You find you begin at the beginning of the manufacturing process and you follow the widget 
all the way through and you measure how much each step of the process takes. That's effectively what we're doing in billing. And because it's so resource intensive, um, uh, we had to select individual facilities um, in countries that are of interest, um, but facilities that are run by people who are interested in collaborating with us. We call this a coalition of the willing. Um, and accordingly, you know, we we had to pick a facility in the United States for the 2017 study uh, that we were intimately familiar with, and we had to pick uh, uh, partners across the world that were going to collaborate with us on this project. Now, having said that, um, I, I do want to emphasize two things. Even though our our coalition of the willing is not a random sample, uh, and therefore uh, we really want to be very modest, appropriately modest, uh, in drawing generalizable conclusions from this necessarily um, non-random sample. Um, there are a couple of things that we want to emphasize. Number one is uh, we deliberately picked countries where we thought the United States uh, would be able to obtain lessons, policy lessons. So a number of people who have looked at administrative costs have compared the United States and Canada. Canada, of course, has a single payer system. Um, so we wanted to look at Canada. Um, we also wanted to look at uh, Germany and the Netherlands because those two countries, much like the United States, have a system of private insurance. In fact, actually, they have a robust market, a uh, fairly competitive market of private insurers. Um, so if Canada could tell us what a single-payer system could do. We thought that Germany and the Netherlands could tell us what a multi-private uh, payer system could do. Um, we also wanted to look at Australia uh, and the Singapore as two other different kinds of insurance systems. Um, Singapore is largely um, through uh, health, service, uh, health savings accounts, so mostly Hospitals get paid either through global budgets from the government and also from out-of-pocket payments. Um, and in Australia, you have a, a national system. I think it's somewhat of a hybrid between the United States and Canada. Um, so we wanted to pick different countries that were different from each other and different from the United States, but the ways that would give us a, a fairly good cross-section uh, of what was out there so there were different kinds of lessons that were available to U.S. policymakers. The other thing I just want to say very briefly is, yes, um, this was a, a non-random sample. Um, and yes, uh, in each country, there was really just one, although in one country there was two. But really, there's only one, uh, one facility in each country. And it's not clear that the facility that we picked is especially or ideally representative of the whole country. But I, I do want to say that we have a lot of enthusiasm for this project. And, and we, we want to be modest in how generalizable our findings are. But we also are, are just genuinely excited about the findings. We think that they really do provide some very pointed and fruitful lessons um, that even if we can accept this as scientific fact, we certainly are confident that the lessons that we're observing in these other countries um, could be very fruitful to policy discussions in the United States. Well, I have to say, generalizability is not the only criterion for the value of a piece of work. And so uh, you have robust, I'd call them quite scientific findings. 
Um, but we do have to be mindful of, of, particularly if someone were trying to do like a quantitative estimate of how much they'd save from shifting from one to the other. I'd, I'd be worried about that. But you have some really interesting findings, and we've done a long windup here. Let's get into them. If you just sort of were to take the top level, what did you find in terms of differences across the country? And particularly, which components that drive those costs are the most variable across countries? The most potent finding that we found, the finding that really stands out is, first of all, um, consistent with all other studies, the United States spends more than any other country on uh, billing and insurance-related costs, uh, substantially higher. Um, Interestingly, Australia had significant costs also compared to uh, the other nations as well. Um, And that speaks to what I think is really the second most significant finding. Um, what drives U.S. BIR costs, and also really what drives Australian BIR costs, is the cost of coding. So what is coding? Um, in the United States, uh, a provider um, indicates through DRGs and CPT codes what kinds of care, what specific procedures uh, are delivered to an individual patient. Those lists of CPT and DRG codes are then translated or then given to coders. Um, Every, I think really every healthcare facility in the country has some kind of coder. These are highly trained professionals who then translate the procedure codes into billing codes. The doctor says what they did and the coder then translates what was done into what is owed. And we find that this is a really complicated and costly process. Um, It's not just because coders are highly trained in the United States, especially, uh, and therefore, um, you know, uh, are are costly uh, to hire and employ, but also the process of translating the code, the procedure codes into the payment codes is time consuming. It's a complicated process. Um, And we're finding that Uh, In the United States, maybe in Australia also, it's a uniquely complicated process. Um, In the other countries, uh, even in uh, the Netherlands and in Germany, where there are also procedure codes and there are also payment codes, they have systems that are much, much more efficient um, in generating payments. Um, So this really is the key finding, um, that we have a complicated system that relies on expensive coders to simply generate bills. Well, uh, it's quite a finding, and I want to dive a little bit more into it. We'll do that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Barack Richman who published a paper in the August 2022 issue of Health Affairs comparing billing and insurance-related administrative costs in the United States to other countries. Before the break, we were talking about the second finding of the paper, which is that coding really is the largest component of costs driving our high administrative spending in the United States. I am curious, uh, those who don't study the time and motion uh, have made a lot out of the notion that uh, intensive coding is used in the United States to maximize revenue. You would think that 
people, providers in all countries would be looking for ways to maximize revenue. So do you have any insight? I know it wasn't central to the paper, but do you have any insight into whether our more intensive uh, spending on coding has to do with revenue maximization relative to just complexity? I think that one thing that should be appreciated is that even though there are significant expenses in these activities, this is not a product of say, sloth or administrative slack, um, providers clearly are very deliberate in how much they spend in writ large on billing. Um, and I think the same can be said also uh, about insurers. Um, and what we have in the United States, I think you're, you're accurate in, in characterizing it this way, as a system where insurers are very deliberately trying to reduce the amount they pay to providers and Providers are engaging in equally deliberate strategies and obtaining as much as they can from insurers. Uh, and part of that involves trying to upcode. Uh, and reciprocally, part of what insurers are trying to do is resist against upcoding. What we see is a product uh, of two parties that are engaging in some complicated arrangements that, after they have basically a contract that defines how much the payer pays the provider. They are within that contract, within that arrangement, each trying to tug as much as they can in their own direction. And there's no reason to think that other payers and providers in other countries, especially private payers, are not engaged in the same kind of efforts. Um, so what we view here is a consequence of a system, not a consequence of individual payers or individual providers uh, that are trying to manipulate a particular system the way it's designed. We really are looking at systemic problems. You know, I note in your paper that, of course, Canada has the lowest billing insurance-related costs. That's not surprising given their system. But you note that some leaders in Ontario actually had concerns that the costs were potentially too low. At the beginning, we talked about this as sort of waste and uh, but if it's too low, maybe it isn't all waste. What's going on that uh, leads to those concerns in Canada? It's hard to imagine a system where BIR costs are zero. Um, not only does it require some kind of effort, and it should require some kind of effort to get paid. You need a billing department. But you also need uh, an appropriate degree of oversight uh, of billing um, to prevent against fraud, to avoid uh, inappropriate shenanigans that even if it might cut costs on the, um, on, on the short run, would actually add costs in the long run. And, and we see some evidence of this in Canada. Um, in Ontario, we have a fascinating phenomenon where physicians, it's effectively a trust system. Um, Physicians tell the national insurer, the, the regional insurer, the, the, the provincial insurer, the government insurer, what they did. And there really is very little, there are very few filters that then pass before payment happens. It really is characterized as an honor system. One worry there always is when one makes cross-national comparisons uh, is the assumption that, well, if the United States just did what Canada would do, we'd have the benefits of Canada. And of course, what works in Canada doesn't always work in the United States. And, it, you know, I'm editorializing a little bit here, but it's hard to imagine that however well an honor system works in Canada, it'd be very hard to imagine that one would work here. Um, but even in Canada, there's evidence that an honor system really has uh, 
has some real drawbacks. Um, there has been uh, some significant indications of fraud that the municipal governments, the provincial governments, um, have not policed adequately. And you also suffer from certain costs that are accompanied by private insurers. The idea of considering how coding takes place, what particular billing codes should look like. Uh, for example, in the United States, we updated from the ICD-9 to ICD-10, um, although that certainly wasn't a big step to promote efficiency. There is a certain kind of updating that that had, and there's an indication in Canada that uh, those kinds of updates uh, are long overdue. Um, so part of what we're seeing, not only in our empirical findings, but also in our follow-up interviews, is that the name of the game is not to minimize BIR costs. Uh, the name of the game is to try to figure out how to come up with a reasonable system while economizing on them. Well, you referenced uh, the notion that you can't just import another system. I, I would note that some of the leading people conducting research on administrative costs in the United States are advocates of a single-payer system, in part because, as you note, they they're very focused on the potential savings associated with uh, dramatically reducing those costs. You are a co-author on a paper that's referenced in the paper we published that really challenges the notion that a single-payer system is the best or maybe the only mechanism for achieving lower administrative costs. Can you say a little more about your view on this matter? Yeah, yeah. And I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because that, I think, is another fairly central motivation in this research. Um there is a prevailing narrative, and it was a very salient narrative during the, the 2020 Democratic uh, primary campaign, um, that the best way, and really, I think, the only way that was on the policy table to reduce administrative costs in the United States is to convert into a single payer. What we try to do in both this paper and in other papers is to ask the question, are there ways of reducing administrative costs, specifically BIR costs, without converting the entire U.S. health system into a single payer? Um, we're not saying a single payer is a bad idea. We're just asking a much narrower question. Can we reduce BIR costs without wholesale systemic change? Um, and the answer we come up with is yes. Um, the, the paper you referenced before, uh, you may say was in many ways predicated by what we anticipated would be the results of this paper. Um, in this paper, we see, I mentioned before, Germany and the Netherlands that have multi-payer systems like the United States, and they achieve uh, far lower BIR costs than the, than the United States. And we, we try to ask why. And again, we're, these are preliminary conclusions, but we see two things happening. Um, number one, um, we see that there is wholesale simplicity that characterizes the contracts between the payers and providers. For example, um, in the United States, I mentioned that uh, uh, payment codes need to be transformed from procedure codes. In the Netherlands, there's no transformation at all. Um, the physician inputs a code, the code that uh, represents the procedure that, that the physician did, and that automatically translates a bill. Um, and you, only, you can only do that if there is a very straightforward uh, system of billing. Um, every procedure has its own bill. 
its own number. The other thing that we found is that uh, the way Germany in particular has achieved efficiencies, even though there are a number of different insurers, is that there are standardized contracts. Every insurer uses the same contract uh, to engage with every payer. Um, in your opening remarks, you, I think, very astutely observed that one reason the United States is so complicated is because every insurer imposes its own contract, its own payment framework uh, onto each provider. Um, so, uh, And frankly, some insurers that have multiple plans impose multiple contracts on the single provider. Um, so what we have in the United States is not just the difficulty of translating procedures into payments, but also making sure that it, that is done accurately for each payer, for each contract that the payer, that, that the particular payer or the payer that's representing this particular patient has imposed. Um, so we see in comparing the United States to Germany and the Netherlands, that one reason we have enormous administrative costs, BIR costs, is because our payment contracts are numerous uh, and each payment contract is complicated. And we offer, in our other paper, we it's a simulation. What would happen in the United States if everything else being equal, we were simply to standardize payer-provider contracts and to simplify them. And we estimate what the cost would be, and we compare the, those savings to a similar estimate of what would happen if we converted into a single payer. And we find the savings to be comparable to each other. Well, as we uh, bring our conversation to a close, I think your last answer foreshadows my last question, which really is, you know, we're a policy journal, so we're always looking for policy solutions to problems. Presumably that uh, multiplicity of mechanisms and processes arises from choices that these health plans are making, and harmonizing all of that wouldn't be straightforward. But uh, what policy steps could we take in the United States at a national level, maybe at a state level? Yeah, you know, and before I answer that, and, and, and I'm excited about this, but before I answer that, it's even it's even worse than the way you describe. It's not just that individual, each individual insurer and each individual provider are doing their own thing in an uncoordinated way. It's also that they often engage in consultants that help them make things more complicated, but more favorable for them. And it shouldn't be surprising that the payers and the providers often engage the same consultant. The, you have these intermediaries, these consultants that are making it complicated on both sides for marginal benefits, but for social inefficiencies. Um, so, so yes. So I think in your question uh, it is at least in part an answer. We do need some kind of coordination. Um, uh, that could make things simpler, that could standardize things. It would be a win-win. It would reduce overall administrative costs that would generate savings for both payers and providers. And we can do that in a variety of ways. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the, the, the sledgehammer of government could probably find some statutory authority to be able to do that. But this is a very common problem. Um, and it's a problem that's been characterized that's characterized inefficiencies in lots of different markets. Um, for example, you, in Wall, on Wall Street, there are a number of different derivative markets 
that began with individual contracts. An individual insurer, effectively, the one that was providing a derivative, was going to an individual investor, and they were hammering out a very complicated contract. And eventually, there was a recognition that there are enough buyers, enough sellers on both sides, that if everybody got together and came up with a standardized contract, you would be able to reduce the costs of creating one of these insurance products to almost zero. Um, and that's how a number of different derivative markets have developed. It's simply by standardizing the contracts. And in that sense, I, I feel I have an occupational obligation to, to, to talk on behalf of lawyers. Lawyers are not just around to ruin the health system. We also have occasionally some pretty good ideas to make it better. Um, and to the degree that lawyers have helped other markets become more efficient, I think in this way, we might be able to make certain healthcare markets more efficient. How do you standardize contracts? It could done, be done privately, um, a community of payers and providers coming together. It could be through some regional effort, through uh, an insurance commissioner. Um, it could be done through Medicare, Medicaid services. Um, but the, the, the proof of concept is already there. Other markets have done it. And I'd be very eager to see certain healthcare markets try. Well, Dr. Richman, I really appreciate your uh, focused look at a topic that, as I say, has been around for decades. Taking it from the macro level to the micro really is a major contribution. I even appreciate your uh, defensive lawyers, since I am one. And I really appreciate also you spending the time being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.